Hosea chapter 2. Uh, just keeping this book on my mind, uh, it really is striking to me that uh, it, it seems as though in this instance, God has commanded the prophet to act in such a way that the prophet's heart uh, would be in some way reflective uh, of, the, of the heart of God. Uh, that's one of the reasons I believe that God really did command Hosea to go and take this woman to be his wife. Uh, as, as outrageous as that seems, uh, it really subjected Hosea to a broken heart. Not only did he just dutifully, it seems, go take her as his wife, uh, I think Hosea uh, obeyed God and then did his best to love this woman. And, and all the while doing all that he could to love her and to redeem her, as it were, to himself, he continually was spurned and that love was spurned. And, and so it seems weird to me in some ways, but providential as well, that the, that, that the emotions being produced in the heart of this prophet as he tried to bring his wife out of that life and bring her to himself and make her one with himself was reflective of the heart of God for his own people. And so it, it doesn't surprise me. So just by way of kind of review, I'm looking primarily in chapter two uh, tonight and just sharing a few thoughts, but just in the review, the, the names given, the sons they had, that Hosea had with Gomer, uh, Jezreel uh, literally means sown or sown by God. The idea here is not in the sense of fruitfulness as much as it is in the sense of scattering. Uh, when you think of sowing, you scatter the seeds. So Jezreel, the name he's commanded to give his first son is God scatters. And so even his children producing this in this union are, are themselves by name prophesying of, of what's coming for Israel. So they're scattered by God. Laruhama uh, means obviously not obtaining. She has not obtained mercy. Uh, as I said Sunday, uh, the low in front of each of these is the negative of that. So Ruhama would be has received mercy or has received compassion. Ami would be my people. Well, the low negates that. So God is saying of these children, number one, God scatters. Number two, God has no more compassion. Number three, they're not my people. And so as I was sharing Sunday, that itself would be a breaking to the heart of the prophet as well as he has children uh, and God commands him to name them names that would be reminders of the coming judgment upon Israel. So every time he looked at his own child, he couldn't call him some name that means blessed of God or, or God's praise or some name that would be encouraging and hopeful. Every time he called his children's name, it would be a reminder not only of God's coming judgment, but of Israel's own rebellion. And then Hosea was experiencing the same emotion in some degree as he dealt with Gomer because obviously in chapter 3 it seems as though she even went away from him. I wrote in this just kind of in summary, uh, rather than being the children of God, essentially their names meant scattered without compassion and alienated from God. That was descriptive of Israel. Scattered, alienated, and no longer receiving compassion from God. The people chosen by God, objects of his mercy, brought into a promised land and established as a testimony to the love, provision, and power of their God in their pride and in their rebellion would be subjected now to a life deprived of those very blessings. 
that alone would have been heartbreaking to Gomer or, or to Hosea, not to mention his own heartbreak from his relationship with Gomer. So he's, he's prophesying of heartbreak of God, as it were, at the same time he's feeling it in his own heart. And I just want to say real quickly, I wonder if sometimes God don't ordain circumstances in our lives to provoke in us the feelings that would be reflective of the heart of God towards us or towards this world or towards this nation or towards this church. And sometimes I think we, we waste our suffering in some ways when we don't understand that in the providence of God, he's provided for it for a purpose rather than just some random act or some freak of nature thing that happens to us. So it's just something that we need to think about. And certainly it seems as though that's the case for Hosea. And as I said Sunday, uh, it absolutely was the case for Christ because he was subjected to the same, possibly the same ridicule and mockery as Hosea himself would, even though he was enduring the sin of his wife. Like Gomer, though bought out of her former life and loved by him, Israel, despite the mercy and love of her husband, fell back to her former idolatrous and self-seeking way of life over and over and over again. That's just stunning. And in application, I just thought this way, and there, there are many, but think about this, how prone, how prone we are after long living with the blessings of God to forget his mercy and our past desperation and how prone we are to falling back upon all the former shallow and empty comforts of the past. That's called in the old King James language in the old country preacher words, backsliding. We came out of that desperate situation like Gomer. We had sold our bodies and soul to the comforts of this world. And God rescued us by his own providential hand, drew us out of those things, brought us into his presence and provided great comfort and great peace and everlasting joy for us. And how long were we enjoying that before that became routine for us? And our hearts began to lean back towards the comforts the old life once provided. Well, we're no different than Israel. And Israel is for us a precedent of the possibility of that happening, not only in individual believers' lives, but in the lives of churches who once knew great revival and a great moving of God and great passion and devotion to God. And God blessed them and perhaps they grew in numbers. And then everybody got so excited with all that was going on, they looked away, they looked away from vertical and looked horizontal and they started enjoying the ministry to the point that they moved away from their first love. And how long is it before that church begins to have problems? And it seems you see that pattern repeated over and over. And that's essentially what you see in the life of Israel. I'm looking primarily in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 here. Uh, this morning, uh, or Sunday morning, I covered most of those. I'll get into chapter 2, but I wanted to read uh, chapter 1, verse 8. We'll begin with verse 8 and read to the end of that chapter. When she had weaned Lerohuma, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is a bit confusing in chapter 10, verse 10 here, because he, he seems to pause here, and he talks about a future even for Israel. 
it's interesting, I'll just say this and think about it on the way through, but once the, once the ten tribes went into Assyrian captivity, we don't really hear about them anymore. You, in fact, you hear them called now the ten lost tribes. Up Even to this day, nobody's been able to identify those ten tribes. So, so we got a real issue here because he seems to be saying they're coming out of that deliverance. Well, they hadn't come out yet. And so this is why I think chapter verse 10 and following is prophetic in nature, the ultimate fulfillment, i.e. Romans chapter 9. But he says here, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Remember, this is who he just said would be scattered without compassion and no longer his people. Now he says, but this same people, the number of sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the, and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. There's a reunification and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go, for up, go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. I thought about this as God is faithful uh, even when we are not in those verses. Though God's judgment would be severe and though Israel's merited no mercy whatsoever, yet here it seems as though God will honor his covenant for his own name's sake. Four things in that little prophetic statement there. The nation would multiply. Verse 10, the, 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 they would once again be called by his name again in verse 10. In verse 11, they would be restored to their brethren, the southern kingdom, Judah, verse 11. And then finally, they would be delivered by one leader. So, so even, in the, even in the rebellion of Israel and the pending captivity, God is still going to someday honor his covenant. He's going to restore his people. And it says something about the devoted love of God, which is what Hosea was experiencing. Hosea was devoted to loving this woman whom God commanded him to take to, his, to himself as a wife. And she was being unfaithful to him. She would go back to her lifestyle. She even became an adulterer and perhaps produced a, a, a child out of, outside of their marriage. And yet Hosea, throughout this book, you never hear that Hosea has set her aside. He's, he's, he's been harsh and he's been strong and firm in trying to bring her back to himself. But you don't read in this book that Hosea finally divorced Gomer for her rebellion. And so Hosea is feeling, feeling in his own heart, the heart of God himself for his people Israel. And he's prophesying in regards to God's word to his people. So in chapter 2, we kind of enter in to another section of this where God, as it were, through Hosea, begins to contend with his bride. So verse 1 and 2, so I'll read I'll read verse 1 through 7 and come back and look at a couple of these verses. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters. Note there that he's taken the low, the negative off. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruma, contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. 
Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, he says, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her pass. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them and she will seek them but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Really striking here. It seems as though Hosea points his children uh, almost in the restoration. In other words, he just said there's a day coming and God's going to restore Israel. And then right on the heels of that, he speaks to his children as though they have been restored. He's taken the negative away. Now they are, he's talking to his children as though they've been restored, saying, you who have received compassion and you who now are the people of God, contend with your mother. That's your problem. The the devastation among your brethren. He said, talk to your brethren. Speak to your mother. Contend with your mother. She's the one who has been unfaithful to God. She's the one who he has wooed and drawn to himself, but she continues to sin against him and commit adultery. So you you children in the restoration, contend with your mother. And that, that's talking about contemporary Israel, contemporary to Hosea. So it's really, it's really fascinating the way the, uh, this unfolds in, in its literary style here. Because he says, say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruma. And he's, this is what they're to say to their brothers and sisters, who I believe is contemporary Israel under Hosea. They're saying, if you want to wonder, if you want to know why God's uh, left you in a bad place, contend with your mother. It's her fault. Israel, in her, in her adultery, in her harlotry. Notice, and he says here, contend with your mother, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. She was not content. This is his indictment against Gomer or Israel in regards to God. She is not content. She was not content to be my wife, nor had she acted as though I was her husband. In other words, there's no faithfulness in Israel. Contend with your mother. You want to know why you're going into captivity and the, and the, negative, the, the negative is going to be removed only in the restoration? It's, the, it's your mother. Contend with her. She was my wife, though she didn't consider herself my wife. I was her husband, but she never acted as though I was her husband. There was, a, there was infidelity and unfaithfulness in Israel. She acted as though I was not her husband. And then he says twice here, she acted as a harlot. Essentially, she sold herself. Not only did he call her out of that, but apparently she continued to do that. Maybe she, would, maybe she excused it and said, Hosea can't provide as well as I'm used to living. Maybe, maybe he couldn't meet her standard of living in according to her own eyes. For whatever reason, he's saying here that she continued to do that. She continued to sell herself. And not only that, but now having been married to the father, she's committed adultery against him, which, which sentence was death, as I've said Sunday. So he's saying to these kids in the restoration who are looking back, as it were, grieving upon the current state of Israel. He said, look, if you want to contend, don't contend with God. Contend with your mother. She's the one who was his wife, although she wouldn't be his wife. And she's the one whom he had become a husband to, yet she would not acknowledge that. So he's really describing the, the rebellion and the hard-heartedness 
of the people of Israel. I think in that section, the true Israel was portrayed, as it were, as looking back upon the people under judgment in Hosea's time or about to come under judgment. I mean, it's like they're baffled. What's going on here? I mean, in the, in the restoration, they'll be brought back to God and they'll once again be his people. And they look back upon their history and they say, what's wrong? I mean, God, what happened back here? And he's saying essentially, don't, don't look to me, look to your mother, contend with her. She's the reason Israel has suffered and the reason we haven't found the 10 tribes to this very day. It's your mother, it's your mother, contend with her. Really a striking way of speaking. In chapter 2 as well, really 2 through 13, look how God acts toward his bride to restore her. In verse 2, he says there, let's see, verse uh, 2, the last part of verse 2, he commands here, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. And then these verses, and let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breast. So these are... What I'm about to share with you, these are, God's, these are God's actions to bring, to restore his bride. And number one here is essentially the command, repent. Repent. Contend with your mother. She is the reason for the judgment and the withdrawal of God's mercy upon the people of Israel. Don't look to God and hold him responsible. Look to your mother. And I say to your mother, who is a harlot and an adulteress, repent, turn away from those things. That's the, that's the husband's effort to bring his wife back to himself. I wondered how many times had Hosea said that to Gomer. He took her to himself to be a wife and perhaps she got gone and he began to wonder where she was. And finally he realized that she had gone out on him and she was once again selling herself and, and even committing adultery to do that. And how often the heart of Hosea broke and he was crying out to her, repent, stop doing that, quit. I'm taking you to my wife. I provided for you. I, I love you, but you keep doing this. Stop. And how often does God plead with his own church through the word of God today to stop, for goodness sake? Repent, turn away from those things that are causing me to withdraw my compassion and to, and to alienate you from me and pull away from you and, and leave you in a wilderness, as it were. You don't like the wilderness, but don't contend with God. Contend with your own hearts. Turn from our sins. That is one of the most difficult thing I think for the contemporary church today is, is sin. In fact, I had considered even initiating the first several messages in the beginning of this new year and just really drill down and concentrate on sin. I've been doing that in my own heart and in my own mind, but I haven't preached on that. But sin is real and it is devastating. It is absolutely self-destructive that we would go on in sin after learning the truth. We are by nature bent on hell. And it is devastating. And how often God says to his church through circumstances, through the darkness in our world today, repent, turn back to God. And if you want to contend about the darkness in society, don't contend with God. Contend with your mother. Contend with, your, contend with your religious leaders who have led you into sin and away from God and made you worldly. That seems to be 
God's message to the people of Israel through the life of Hosea and through the testimony of Hosea as well. So his command is his effort to restore her. Repent, turn away, cease your harlotry and your adultery. Repent. Notice he does in verse 3 through 4, his efforts to restore her as well include a warning there. He says, let her do this or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, like a desert land and slay her with thirst. In fact, the idea there of exposing her, if you look in chapter 3 as well, verse 9 and 10, it seems to be talking about two different things. Uh, verse, verse 9, at the end of that, he says, I will take away my wool and my flax given to her to cover her nakedness. So he seems to be talking about, I will expose her uh, by withdrawing my provisions. And in verse 10, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And if you look in verse 3, I will strip her naked and expose her. So the warning here is, look, turn away from this sin or I will remove the covering of my provision and leave you destitute. And that itself will expose expose you to all those whom you are depending upon. You, they will understand at that point, they will see the lewdness of your act. You had provision and you rejected that provision and you went after your lovers. Cease from that or repent or I will remove my provision and expose you in their sight for what you are, which in her case was a harlot and an adulterer. That's a severe warning, and God's, uh, God's pursuit of his people is just as severe. That's essentially what he's saying to them. Turn away from your harlotry and your adultery, or I will remove my provision from you, and you will find yourself destitute, and in that day you'll be dependent upon all your lovers, and they will forsake you because your lewdness will have been exposed even to them. You are utterly, utterly forsaken. That's the warning. Not even the world will receive you then because you will have been exposed as what you are. And so he warns her as a way of restoring her. He deprives, he says in verse 3 as well, to speaking of thirst there, I think he means there generally speaking that he would deprive her of her comfort and again her provision. I will leave you as a wilderness and you will, you will know thirst in that moment. Abandon. I thought about Hagar when they sent her away. You remember she, she laid the child away and didn't want to see the child perish. And so she went away apart from the child expecting herself to perish at some point. That kind of ideology is involved here. Just putting you out there. Turn from your sins or you're going to alienate yourself from me so far that I will, that I will expose you for what you really are. And, and I will withdraw my provision and you will know thirst in that day. It's sad because she probably thought her thirst could be quenched by selling herself and providing for the comforts that she enjoyed in life, whatever they might have been. Her thirsts were earthly and fleshly, and she was satisfying all those, flesh, all those thirsts in the world. And he's saying, I will, I will expose you now to where the world won't even quench this thirst. I will create in you this great thirst and this desperation. He would deprive her, he says, of this. In verse 4 and 5, it was striking as well, but it, I will withdraw compassion even from your descendants. He talks about her children there. 
It's one thing to, it's one thing to rebel against God and to resist God and, and to defy your own God. But then he says it's, it's, a whole nother, it's a whole other level of suffering here because in your resistance to me, I will remove the compassion for your children. So now you're in a dry land. You've been exposed to the world. They don't want anything to do with you. You're utterly isolated. You're thirsting for things and you can't have that thirst quenched at all. And you look around and the children you born, they themselves are no comfort to you because God has withdrawn his compassion even from them now you don't even have your family that is a sobering imagery in regards to how God is pursuing his people and what links he will go to bring about the restoration of his people sometimes I think we we play with fire when we think we can toy with worldliness and God will let us go along if we do that and we continue to drift apart from him How severe will be his efforts to draw us back to himself? Could it be this? It's a frightening thing to think about, and it's a thing that makes us tremble when we think about it. That's what Hosea is describing here. Notice in verses 6 and 7 as well, but he speaks of how he's putting up obstructions. This was amazing to me, obstructions to her sin. He says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her pass. Here's it. This is the husband's efforts to restore his wife. You can almost imagine Hosea saying this to Gomer. If, if you don't turn away from this, I'm going to go to these people that you're selling yourself to and I'm going to take the provisions I'm providing you away and I'm going to go to them and expose you as the adulteress that you are. Let them know that they are taking another man's wife when they are lying with you and they're going to reject you and your children are going to despise you because you can't be with them now. I'm going to put you out here on this island and not only that, In order to keep you from getting to your sins, I'm going to fill your path with thorns. You may get to your lovers, but you're going to have to climb through the briar patch to get it. This is Hosea talking to Gomer, but it is through him God talking to Israel. I am going to stack your way with thorns. Anybody, I've been in a lot of briar patches when I was a kid. And I'm going to tell you what, especially those real thick ones, the real dark green ones, you get into those things and they're, they're rooted hard. You can't pull one up to save your life. You have to cut it. Those things would get wrapped around your legs, and I mean you would fall. You'd be ripped all to shreds, and, and I'd come home and mom would say, what in the world have you been into? We've been chasing a rabbit. We was in the thorn patch. And that's, that's the imagery he's saying here. Look, I'm not going to stand by, Hosea says to Gomer, and just let you walk freely into your sin. It is destroying you. It is destroying our children. It is destroying our relationship. It is a, it is a mockery and a forsaking of my devoted love for you. And I'm not going to stand by and facilitate you getting to your sins. I'm going to put stuff in your way. I don't know what that was for Hosea. And I don't know what it would be for God towards his people Israel. And I don't know what it would be from God to us. How has God obstructed you from getting to that thing that's tempting you or drawing you away? It might be that he's robbed you of the finances it would take to purchase those things. It might be that he's robbed you of the opportunity, perhaps a job loss or, or not getting a job. Perhaps he's, he's taken away from you some 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 
course of action or some circumstance which you which would have lended itself to you getting towards the thing closer to the thing which you were desiring in your flesh but you can't get it can you You couldn't get that job couldn't get that raise couldn't get this couldn't get that well maybe that's God putting thorns in our way so even as we desire to seek out our lovers in this world we can't we, we just can't get to them I can't tell you how many times even as a lost person when I had set my heart on doing evil, I left the house, I left the house intending to get into trouble tonight. And something would happen. Sometimes it was something just easy as a car breakdown. Now I can't get to my trouble. I can't find, I can't get to the place where I had designs to get in a lot of trouble tonight. And then I just cursed the darkness and cursed the car. Not knowing that God in His mercy may have been putting thorns in my way because what I intended to do that night might have resulted even in my death. How many thorns has God put in your path? And what thorns are in the way now to, of the thing you think that it is that you're supposed to be having? Has God put thorns in your way. He says even further here, not only will I put thorns in the way so you can't get to them, I'm going to build walls up so you lose sight of the path. <laughs> if you're following a path and all of a sudden you come up on a wall, you, you can't see over the wall, you can't get over the wall, you don't know where the path is. It don't turn around. You just can't go any further. He says, I'm not only going to make it difficult for you to get there, I'm going to put walls up to make it impossible for you to get to them. Oh, you're going you're gonna to still long for it. You're going to still desire. Hosea probably knew the same thing about Gomer. I'm going to put thorns in your way. I'm going to forbid you. I'm going to make sure that you can't get to them. And I'm not crazy enough to think that your heart's still not inclined to get there. I'm just going to cease to it circumstantially that you can't act upon your sinful desires. And so Hosea, I don't know what he put in place. But he must have made some effort to put in place. And God certainly did put these things in place for Israel as well. So his instructions to her sin. Notice in verse 7 as well what his aim was. This seems harsh. Seems harsh. Even especially when we're talking about Hosea towards Gomer here. It seems harsh. As bad as she is, it seems harsh and oppressive maybe. Look at what he says God's aim is. He says in verse 7, she will... She will pursue, despite the thorns and despite the walls, she will pursue her lovers. But he says, but she won't overtake them. She won't catch up to them. She will seek them. She'll continue to seek them. But she won't be able to find them because I'm blocking her way. I am not going to let her get to them. Why am I doing this? Gomer, Hosea, you're so cruel to me. I've done you like this. Why don't you just put me away and let me leave? Why do you love me so much, Hosea? Just leave me alone. Why is Hosea doing all this? He says in verse 7, Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And that's God talking to Israel. Why is God so firm and so, so harsh and severe with someone he loves, a people that he loves? Why is he so severe? Well, he tells here, because in the severity and in the isolation and the deprivation and deprivation that you experience in the, in the moment that you're depending utterly upon this world and yourself, in that moment, then you'll become the prodigal in the pig pen who says, it was better when I was at home than down here eating with the pigs. 
and you'll take up your stuff and you'll come home. That's why he was doing it. And that's what God is saying through Hosea to Israel. Israel, that's what he's doing. He's obstructing your way. He's warning you. He's, he's commanded you to turn away, to repent from these sins, but yet you keep going and he's blocking your way and keeping you from getting there and still you desire them. But his aim in that is to call you back to himself. That's why I said, somebody told me after a sermon Sunday that there were a few people that had made movies of this, and I don't, I don't think I want to watch any of them because I think they would fall so far short of what's happening here. But I could just imagine in my mind's eye Hosea loving Gomer and how admirable and, and exemplary a love he is demonstrating here. And yet she had, she had access to the greatest love she would have ever known. She probably grew up from her youngest days as a prostitute and had never known love. She simply sold herself body and soul to provide for her means along the way and found some comfortable, miserable inward life, but some comfortable place. And here comes a man who loves her unconditionally and will do anything to bring her to himself. And she's got the greatest gift a woman could have had, the love of a faithful man of God and a prophet. And she hates it. And she spurns it at every turn. Well, is Israel any less unfaithful? And is it any less outrageous that Israel was rejecting the God who loves infinitely? The God who is loves perfectly all the while. And if God, if Israel ought to be ashamed for re rejecting such a God, oughtn't we to be ashamed for rejecting a God who loves us this way? certainly the church, and even as individuals. So his aim, verse 7, her efforts will fail, her suffering will drive her back to me. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, he goes on in this chapter. Uh, I touched on this Sunday morning, but verse 8 here. For she does not know, and you can almost hear the heartbreak of Hosea speaking here, but prophetically speaking for God towards Israel as well. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the new oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bales. <laughs> that which I provided, they offered up to false gods. I was watching a documentary today, just a little bit of it. And it's, I'm wanting to say Yuhan, it's somewhere in the western provinces of China. And it's, it's right in the... They, they caught the border between Cambodia, Laos, and all that in China. It's just stuck right there at the tip of China. And it's like it draws people from all different cultures. And they were, uh, they were out here and parading and just agitating and just worshiping everything coming and going. And right there in the foreground, you could see this monument they had built. And it wasn't just one bull it was like a mountain, and it was four, maybe five wonderfully sculpted golden bulls. And they're all dancing, and they have this dance called the hair dance, and all these young ladies get out there, and they're not immodestly dressed, but they're just slinging their heads frantically, and their long hair is just flailing everywhere. It has, a, it has a, a, an eerie look when you saw them all doing that, and they're going around these cows, these bulls doing this. And I thought... That's Israel. That's Baal worship. And it's still happening today. 
And God was judging his people for this. And they had, they had taken all the provisions that God had provided and they had assigned credit to them to the Baals. And they were worshiping the Baals. And what a mockery to the God who had provided so much for them. So he says in verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. Again, here's God depriving his people. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to her to cover her nakedness. And as I've already read, then I will uncover her lewdness. I will punish her for the days of Baal, verse 13, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and, and follow her lovers so that they forgot me, declares the Lord. That's what that scene I was watching in that documentary looked like. I wondered if in that region did, had there ever been anyone there that shared the gospel. I mean, they may be generation after generation after generation worshiping the Baals, even to this very day. Look in verse 14, and I'll close with these thoughts. This again, here Hosea speaking of Gomer, but here God speaking of his people. He says, therefore, behold, I love this, I will allure her. I will attract her. I will entice her. He's talking about his bride. I'm going to expose her lewdness. I'm going, to, I'm going to set her on this island. I'm going to deprive her of all these comforts. And in her desperation, she'll begin to think in her mind, I had it better at home than, I, than I'm having it out here. And so all this stuff is working. Then he says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and there speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of their youth. You can almost hear the prophet, the prophet anticipating a restoration and a redemption of his bride and the joy that's going to be there. He says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord. And here again, I think he leaks over into longer term prophecy. It will come about in that day that declares the Lord that you will call me Ish, my husband, and, I, and will no longer call me the Baal, my master. For I will re remove the names of Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by their by name anymore. And that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth, I love this, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me Listen how he exalts here in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Listen to what he says here. It will come about. This is the, this is the prophet exalting, maybe thinking about Gomer, but this is God exalting in his people. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and, and they'll respond to the earth. I'll say to the heavens, rejoice. And the heavens will respond to the earth. When, I, when he says rejoice in the heavens means probably water, rain on the earth. The heavens, they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the, the seed in the ground. When the earth, water falls on the earth and the earth gets moist and brings its nutrients, the grain will respond to the earth. And it'll grow and it'll produce new wine and oil. And they will respond to Jezreel, this uh, sowing of God. He's changing the emphasis there from scattered to being sown by God. And he says, I will sow for her, sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. 
prophetically, he may be even speaking there of the bringing in of the Gentiles. And so, so his own bride is going to forsake him, but I think he's calling her back. And at the same time, he's calling beyond her, even, in, even into our lives. And then you get this future prophecy of when he sows us in righteousness and faithfulness. Uh, I just, you, really have to, you really have to think along the lines of Homer or Hosea relating to Gomer and to get the emotion of this and then read that in the context of God responding to his people. Because that is just the same heart of God that's being revealed. I think, that, I believe with all my heart, that's why God commanded Hosea to do such an outrageous thing as to go love this woman who herself was unworthy of his love. Because that's exactly what God's done for us. He's come and loved us who are all unworthy of that love. And we're so much like Israel that it's frightening in how resistant and, a bit, and rebellious we are against one who loves us so deeply and so manifestly as God. Stand with me tonight. Just some thoughts. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, I prayed as I was studying today and just reviewing, uh, just confessing just how much like rebellious Israel that we can be sometimes. The slightest discomfort, the slightest trial the slightest challenge we find ourselves retreating to the comfortable and familiar things of this world but father our citizenship is in another place it is no it should be no surprise to us lord that what you have for us seems alien and strange sometimes because we've lived all of our lives gratifying the flesh and now that you come to minister to the inner man and to the spirit father I pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom and to receive in, in full that which you have purposed for us in our lives. Lord, help us to be a faithful bride as a church. Lord, help us to not be drawn away and lured back to the comforts of the past that are so shallow and so empty. Lord, we pray that you will stir in our hearts a yearning desire for you always that would always keep us faithful. Lord, not so much for our sake, but because you are worthy because you are glorious, you are holy, you are love. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I pray that they would be encouraged always by your word and by your spirit, Lord. I know very often you bring something to bear in our hearts that perhaps wasn't even intended by the preacher or by the teacher. And Father, I pray that we would be responsive to that thing which you have pricked our hearts in regards to tonight. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. And for his glory, amen.